quits, I keep on working on this I'm working hard on this It's pain, obviously it is Oh, Hi there and welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving in. Lou, I've read so many fantastic books over our break and it's been quite hard to narrow it down to a few to discuss today, but I'm sure some of the others will come up in future conversations that we have on the podcast. Since our last episode in December, we had a holiday down in Margaret River and I know you've had a lovely holiday too. We were staying in a vineyard with a house in the middle of a number of different paddocks that oh, were under beautiful. vine, different grape varieties. And we had kangaroos coming onto the front lawn every day at dusk and nibbling on the grass and that's what they would eat. And there were lots of mothers and little joeys and little joeys would jump out and nibble away. But they're very sensitive. So the minute we made a noise in the kitchen, they would turn around and scuttle a bit, move a few metres back. They were absolutely gorgeous. Oh, how beautiful. Yeah, and our house had a big veranda overlooking the property, so I got a lot of reading done. And I've read a ton of books since we've been back. There's just so many, but I'll start with a fairly quick one, which I really enjoyed, which is Long Bright River by Liz Moore. And this um, had quite a lot of hype, which was one of the reasons that I thought, oh, I must read that. I want to know what everybody's, you know, so excited about. It's a contemporary thriller set in Philadelphia in an area called Kensington, and it has apparently a significant number of people affected by opioid addiction. Oh, yep. And the narrator is a policewoman named Mickey and she has a young boy, she's a single woman, and she has a sister who has addiction problems. And the book opens as Mickey realises that she hasn't seen her sister Casey around the streets of Kensington for about a month and it becomes apparent that she's missing. Oh, wow. And there's a string of murders of young addicts and each time Mickey gets a call out to a crime scene she expects it's going to be her sister sister. Casey so it's quite gripping from that point of view and it's quite a layered thriller in that the sisters were raised by their very distant grandmother who did sort of the minimum amount required to bring them up and no more their mother had died as a result of her own addiction and their father was also an addict and he'd been He's been missing for oh, so years. So this intergenerational mm-hmm. addiction. Oh. Yes, yes, and that does come back again in the story. And Mickey seems to be hiding from a man. She's moved into a new house in a slightly different part of Kensington and the lady whose house she's in, she's sort of in an upstairs flat. The lady downstairs says, oh, a man's been looking for you, knocked on the door, tall, handsome guy and... The reader doesn't know who that is and Mickey says, oh, don't tell him I'm here. I hope you told him I was here but I've gone. And so, you know, you you start to feel quite worried for her. And then the reader becomes aware that when Mickey was a teenager and attending an after-school club that was run by the police for kids from disadvantaged families, she had been groomed 
by a very senior police officer to enter into a relationship mm. with him. There's not a lot I can say without giving away the plot, but it's a really good book. You would love this, and Louise. And not too bleak. No, I didn't find it bleak because she's quite a good character. She's mm. got a lot of potential. She actually wanted to do other things with her life mm. and I think she became a police officer because of the grooming and the relationship yes. with this senior police officer. But the, the twists and turns are so compelling and some I didn't see coming. Mm. In fact, most of them I didn't see coming. And I'm not terribly good at seeing twists no, coming in thrillers. No, but that's good, though, because there are a lot of predictable crime books where yeah. you know what's yeah. about to happen, yeah. so that's great. There was one twist that I sort of had a feeling might be the case, mm. but things develop with the mm. sister and with family members and people from the past and people who you think are one thing turn out to be not. Mm. And there's this sort of backdrop of the opioid epidemic, which is such an interesting thing to write about. And it affects so many families, families who are themselves not addicted or but have a relative who is yeah. and who get phone calls saying... Yeah there's been a death in this flat, you need to come and check your family member. So I couldn't put it down. I read it really quickly and I, I know that you would love it because you love thrillers. So yeah, excellent. What have you been reading, Lou? Well, yes, I also read quite a lot over the summer, but in the end I've picked a couple of books to review today that are quite different, but I guess what the similarity is that they were both great holiday reads. And the first one is Heather Rose's latest book, Bruni. She won the Stella Prize with the Museum of Modern Love in 2017 and the Stella is a very significant book prize in Australia for women's yeah. writing. So Bruni's set in Tasmania, for our overseas listeners. Tasmania is one of our six states in Australia, but it's not on the mainland. It's an island which is off the southeastern coast of Australia. And I spent two weeks there in January with my family. Yeah. It's really beautiful, Tasmania. It's, it's got these incredible coastlines and scenery. And I guess it's a destination for walks and hikes yeah. and fishing. We did an incredible hike over it four days. It pristine and beautiful it is, in the It photos. is pristine. <laughs> Yeah, and you can see why so many people have upped stakes and yep. not necessarily retired there but had a sea change to Tasmania. The food is amazing and there's wineries. So it ticks a lot of boxes mm. for travel. It's really very beautiful. And then the island of Bruni is off the southeastern coast of Tassie. It's about 50 kilometres long and you can only access it by ferry. And it's also very popular with locals and tourists who are looking for sort of a simple life. But in the novel, we find that the Tasmanian government has built a massive bridge over to the island of Bruni. And surprise, surprise, it has proved to be a very divisive decision. Some people are hopeful the bridge will lead to jobs and tourism, while others worry that the pristine nature of Bruni and Tasmania will be spoiled forever. And the book opens as Astrid Coleman, who lives in New York, but she travels the world as a conflict negotiator in war zones for the UN. Oh, very wow. glamorous role. Yeah, what a great character. Um, is telephoned by her twin brother, John Coleman, and he is the Premier of Tasmania. And he tells her that part of the Bruni Bridge, which had been very close to completion, um, has been blown up by terrorists. Wow. And he asks her to return to Tasmania and broker a peace, basically, between oh. the protesters and the bridge workers. Using her skills. Exactly. Uh -huh. So the bridge can be repaired and finished and ultimately also to help him win the next election. So she also receives at the same time an anonymous text urging her to go back to Tasmania. So she oh. returns. Now, the Coleman twins have got an older sister, Max, Maxine, and I have to say, rather improbably, she's the leader of the opposition. <laughs> 
I mean, there's coincidence and then yeah. there's that. Yeah. I mean, it's probably stretching it a bit. And look, Heather Rose senses that the reader might balk at this and she reminds us how small Tasmania is with such a small population and how deeply connected people are. And I can vouch for that. Yes. My husband's from Tasmania and everybody does appear to be related yes. to each other. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so perhaps it's not so strange to find two siblings in, in a deeply political family who might end up on the either side of the yeah, aisle. But yeah. again, it's a little bit of a stretch. But their father was a minister for many years in, in the party that Max now leads in opposition, uh, whereas her brother is in charge of a conservative government. But Astrid, on the other hand, had chosen to leave Tasmania as soon as she could. Um, you know, she was searching for a broader worldview and she found it quite claustrophobic and provincial. And she's built this impressive career in New York. So she hits the ground running and she's thrown into multiple meetings with pretty much everyone who has an interest in the bridge. You know, construction teams, project managers, the protesters, the Friends of Bruni Action Group, and lots of state and federal politicians. And we also learn very early in the novel, so this isn't a spoiler, that new legislation has been quickly introduced, new foreign labour laws, which allow 300 foreign workers from China to arrive to fix the bridge. Wow. Yeah. And Astrid can't really help herself. It, you know, it's not why her brother brought her back to Australia, but she really wants to find out who blew up the bridge. And it's not long before she starts to think that certain things don't add up. Wow. Um, she smells a rat, basically. And so the novel is classified as a political thriller and there's this race on. There's a race to finish the bridge, a race to find out who blew it up and why. So no one claimed responsibility in the usual Correct. way. No one mm. claimed responsibility. And there's also a race to win the election. And there's lots of very well-drawn characters, some of them shady, some others not so much, but she keeps you guessing about you know, where all the players fit. This sounds great, Lou. Mm. So as a political thriller, it's very timely and the themes are extremely current. Yeah. You know, she draws a beautiful sense of place with Tasmania. It's her hometown as well and she left when she was young, like Astrid, and it's about that place and culture that's coming under threat by the deals that the government's doing and sort of, you know, capitalism takes centre stage. And, look, while I found that, the, you know, this dastardly plot and the reveal really enjoyable. It's a very enjoyable book. What I enjoyed more were the family relationships. Ah. So, you know, the, the dynamic between Astrid and her siblings and also the characters of her very difficult vain mother and her loving father. So that's what really shines for me in the book. You know, she's got a very special relationship with her father and that's very sort of tenderly drawn. And he was Heather on the Rose. other side of politics, wasn't he? To her brother. But on the oh. same side of politics as her sister, yes. Yes. And he has dementia and he only speaks in Shakespearean quotes, but they're always very apt <laughs> and they're relevant to what's going on around. Oh, I'd love that. So, of course, there's lots of political discussions going on around the Sunday lunch dinner table and, you know, there's obviously the family's deeply political and you know, he comes up with these quotes directly from Shakespeare that are absolutely spot on. So I love that. Yeah, I would love that. And she's also got a very good relationship with her sister-in-law, her twin brother's wife. So she's sort of a cool under fire premier's wife and she's a very well-drawn character. So it's a good read. I recommend it. Mm, that sounds really good. I've got that at home, so I'm going to move that up the enormous... TBR stack. <laughs> it keeps growing. Oh, my goodness. Another one that I read, which I thought I would talk about, is Kylie Reed's Such a Fun Age. 
which is another one that's been receiving a lot of hype. It's all over Instagram. And this is also set in Philadelphia, coincidentally, although in a more salubrious part, I would think. And it opens with a 23-year-old black girl called Amira, and she gets a phone call at 11 o'clock at night by the White family that she's a babysitter for. And they say, we need you to come and pick up the toddler and take her out of the house for us. Someone has thrown an egg through our window of the house mm. and we just need you to get the toddler out of the house for a while while we deal with this and with the police. And Amira's at a party, but she says, oh, okay, they, they offer a double time and a half pay or something. So she goes over there, takes the toddler down to the Whole Foods store down the road and they're in the shop. And they've had a bit of a dance, looking around, just, just filling in time, looking at the nuts. <laughs> and a customer makes a complaint to the security guard. And the customer says, I think that black girl has kidnapped the oh, little white girl. Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. And the security guard comes over and interrogates Emira. And he says, I can't let you leave the store, ma'am. Mm. You know, I'm going to call the police. You know, how do you know this child? And, and says to the child, do you know this lady? And the little girl's only two or three. Oh. And a crowd has gathered. Oh. And there's a guy videoing the entire contretemps um, on his iPhone. And Amira has to ring the child's father and get him to run down to the store and verify that Amira is the babysitter and not oh. a kidnapper. How so, dreadful. So it's a pivotal event in the story. And the book then goes back and reveals that Amira, the babysitter, is sort of a bit drifting. She's not really sure what she wants to do. She's got a group of girlfriends and they're all finishing off their degrees and moving into interesting jobs and becoming quite dynamic and going places. And she's just babysitting and working part-time for the Greens Party mm. in the electoral office. And the mother of the little toddler is a social media influencer and she's also writing a book and her husband is a TV presenter who has made a thoughtless, off-the-cup racist remark live to air, caused a real outcry on his so morning... quite high profile, though, yes, isn't it? Yes, yes, although I, I don't know. It's, you're not as high profile as you might think for right. someone who carries that much weight, but... Mm. And hence the egg being thrown through the window. It was yeah, in direct okay. response to that. And the book raises lots of social issues, some of which we just don't encounter in Australia, such as the security guard in the store having the power to detain yeah. someone just because he thinks yeah. they're a different race and shouldn't be with yeah. each other. That just would not happen here. No. But also issues like the employers of Amira, the social media influencer and the TV presenter, turn themselves inside out when they find out what happened at the store. Mm. They're mortified and they're sort of turning themselves inside out to not be racist. Okay. But they start to behave in quite an odd way towards Amira. What, because it's playing on their minds? Yes, it plays on their minds. They feel guilty that they were, you know, complicit in it or that they might have contributed to it mm. in some way and by asking her late at night to go down to a store with a child, you know, that they put her in that position. So there's this rather contrived plot manoeuvre where the guy that Amira starts dating, who was the guy videoing it on his iPhone, has another connection to the family. Oh, okay. And so that's integral to the plot and it's a little bit unlikely in my opinion mm. I didn't buy it 
I think I might be in the minority on that. No, I still want to read it, though. Yeah, I still want to read yeah. it. And the mother becomes sort of infatuated with Emira, and, uh, and I think there's a phrase there where she loves her. And I also found that a bit jarring. I, I didn't buy that. I thought you were going to tell me that they smelled an opportunity to use this scenario. Yes. Because there's no... Um, they're obviously feeling genuine remorse that... Well... Yes, there is genuine remorse, but I can't really decide what the mother's motives were. I'm not, I'm not sure that she was drawn in a way that was authentic to me. Okay. Sometimes she was portrayed in a really uh, negative light and then sometimes you were inside her head and she seemed a bit more reasonable. And so that I didn't really like mm. her character. And I, I've mentioned that there was a video made of this scene with the security guard and that becomes a part of the story. Mm. So it's had a lot of hype. It's one of those books that's everywhere and it's really good that it raises these very uncomfortable issues. I think it's fantastic that books address this and Mm. hold a mirror Mm. up to society. Another one of the issues that it raises is that the guy who starts dating Amira, Amira is a black girl, the guy who starts dating her who videoed the scene is a white guy. Mm. And it turns out that he only dates black women. Okay. And I didn't really know that was a thing because we that isn't really a thing in no. Australia that I'm aware of. We just it's just a different dynamic here. Mm. So that's another issue that becomes quite an, an important issue in the book. So I enjoyed it. I really couldn't put it down because I wanted to know what was happening. Mm. So the, it's a page turner. But I don't think it was wonderful enough to justify the hype. Yeah. There's, there's been a lot on Instagram yeah. about it, hasn't there? I always sort of feel a bit disappointed when there's so much hype for a book. And I don't know whether it's just serendipity or luck or something captures the public's Mm. imagination or whether it's good marketing by the publishers or the author because there are other books that you read that are equally as good and maybe a lot better written Mm. that just don't sell as many copies. Well, there's these, you know, publishing machines that get books out there Mm. and, as you say, Mm. if you're not part of that Mm. and your book doesn't have quite that exposure, then... Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't normally rate books by numbers, but to give you an idea, I I would say I'd give it a sort of a seven or a seven point okay. five out of ten, I guess, yeah. something okay. like that. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, yeah, and I think you would enjoy it. Yes. And you've given me a copy, good. and I am yeah. I am I am going yeah. to read it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it is actually my next book yeah. to read, so I'll I'll look forward to that. Yeah. The other book that I wanted to review today is Jojo Moyes' book, The Giver of Stars. That's her most recent re- release. And like Bruni, it was released in October last year, that golden month for book releases. Yeah. This book has had an enormous amount of attention, hasn't it? Yes. It's all yes. over Instagram and, and elsewhere. And I look, I'm embarrassed to say I'm not familiar with many of Jojo Moyes' other books. No, me either. Her genre is traditionally romance and I haven't read many romance books, but she's a prolific writer. Her books have been translated into 46 languages and they've sold 38 million copies. So she's absolutely out there. Yeah. She's had several number one bestsellers. I wouldn't call The Giver of Stars a romance book at all. It's more of a historical novel. The book is set in the Depression in America and there's a feisty young woman, Alice Waters, and she's met her husband, Bennett Van Cleve. And she's met him in England where he's travelling with his domineering and highly religious father. They're travelling for an outreach mission. Right. And she marries him and she impulsively returns with them to Kentucky. They live in East Kentucky. 
And look, from the get-go, she doesn't conform to the expectations right. of a wife in Kentucky. Yeah, yeah. And she certainly didn't conform in England either and her parents were happy to see her leave, um, which is rather sad. But shortly after she ra- arrives in Kentucky, she's in church one Sunday and there's an announcement that female volunteers are required for a library. We love books about oh, libraries, we don't do. we? But this is a library with a difference. The librarians are required to ride horses, pack horses, up into the mountains of Kentucky and beyond and deliver books to remote families and children. And the lady who is calling for volunteers sort of adds that this is an initiative that President's wife, Eleanor Roosevelt, is supporting this idea of bringing books and literacy to remote areas. So it's a, you know, Fantastic. it's wonderfully based on, on a true story. This was a real initiative. You know, obviously in the Great Depression, there was a lack of budget money. And they estimated in in 1936 more than a third of Americans had no reasonable access to public libraries. And eastern rural Kentucky is an extremely sort of isolated area geographically. You know, it's cut off from a lot of the country and um, many people in the Appalachian area didn't have access to books and many of them were illiterate. So the Pack Horse Library Project was a real work progress administration program and it delivered books to remote regions between 1935 and 1943. How wonderful. Uh, And women were involved in the project and I think it eventually led to 30 different libraries serving 100,000 people. So it was was an amazing initiative. So after a row with her husband, Alice joins the library and she's trained by a very capable horsewoman, Marjorie O'Hare. And Marjorie is a defiantly sort of independent woman. She's highly unusual for the times. Her father had been a felon, and so she's regarded with some suspicion by many of the members in the community where they live. And Alice is pretty intimidated by her, but their relationship and their sort of ultimate friendship and with also the other three female librarians, so this sort of sisterhood of five women and their determination to get books Mm. to all of the needy people in all weathers. That's the sweet spot of the book. Right. Um, It's very inspiring. Yeah. And place looms very large in this book, like Bruni, the countryside of Kentucky, which the women experience as they're riding in all weathers and they're going out alone on their deliveries. So place is a big part of it. Yeah. I'm not going to talk much more about it because, you know, I don't want to give anything away. I've barely touched the surface, but it is a big story. Obviously, not everyone approves of the ladies' library. There's some highly charged romance with some handsome men. Oh, how gorgeous. Which you would expect from Jojo Moyes. And it's a touch sentimental at times, but I didn't mind that because I was sort of smitten with the idea of this sisterhood. And it's a very easy, enjoyable read, and it's been optioned for a movie, which, of course, doesn't surprise me. It's going to be a a Little Women-esque production set maybe 60 to 70 years later. I do feel I have to mention that there's been some controversy with the book. There was another book released earlier by an American author from Kentucky, Kim Richardson, called The Book Woman of Troublesome Creek. And that's also about, uh, it's a fictional book, but based on the pack librarians. It does have some similar storylines. And in fact, there's sections of both books which are quite similar. When I say similar, there's similar sort of minor plot lines and characters. And Kim Richardson did claim that Jojo Moyes had plagiarised her book, but I don't believe the claims have gone um, any further. And Jojo Moyes is English and she travelled to Kentucky to research her book and Kim Richardson lives in Kentucky and obviously did a, a great amount of research as well. And 
I suspect that it is coincidence. Yeah. And both books are out there. So um, these things would, do happen sometimes. They do. They yeah. do. And I look, I, I recommend it. It's, it's a lovely read. Yeah, it sounds gorgeous, Lou. I think I remember reading a review and being quite captivated by the image of these women going up and down and quite intrepid really yeah Um, impenetrable areas and through creeks and having to wait for a creek to go down and what's lovely is they obviously all had their own roots yeah uh, in the story and I imagine this is exactly how it happened and they developed relationships with the people they were delivering the books and the children and yeah you know particularly the kids that were so waiting for the comics or so waiting for the books and and another lovely thing is in at the beginning of many of her chapters she has little quotes from some of the books she was delivering so she was delivering little women yeah or a mark twain book with little quotes oh beautiful from that so yeah it's a it's a lovely book that sounds beautiful now, I'm going to talk about another book that we've both read. Yes, we've yeah. both read this next one. Um, American Dirt. We're going Dirt. there. We're going to go We're going there. To go there. <laughs> We're going to go there. We're brave. Yeah, this is American Dirt by Jeannie Cummings. hope I've pronounced that right. Is she Janine? Or I think Jean? she's Janine. Janine Cummings, yes. This is a very recent release in January this year. People are not going to forget this book in a hurry. Sadly, not because of the book itself, but because it's caused an absolute media and publishing firestorm. And we're going to talk about that in a minute and the nature of the controversy, but I'll just quickly talk about the book itself. Yeah. So the book's set in Mexico, and it follows the story of Lydia Perez, who's married to her journalist husband, Sebastian, and she has a bookstore, and they have a young son, and they live happily in a small apartment in Acapulco. And American Dirt opens sort of explosively. Lydia's family have gathered at a party at Lydia's mother's house. It's an occasion for Lydia's niece, her goddaughter. It's her quinceañera, which is a big deal in Mexico and Latin America, I gather. It's a girl's 15th birthday and it marks the transition to adulthood. So while Lydia is tending to her son in the bathroom, the whole family is brutally murdered. So mother and son survive the massacre and she's immediately focused upon their survival. And of course, in Mexico or Latino culture, the maternal figure is revered and sort of the grace and dignity of women is held in high regard. And in this novel, Lydia, of course, takes centre stage in harrowing circumstances. So very soon Lydia comes to believe that this is payback for the investigation and ultimate article that her husband has written about the boss of a Mexican cartel, Javier Crespo Fuentes, also known as the Owl. She feels that her and her son have no option but to flee Acapulco and disappear to the north, to America. And so most of the book, literally three-quarters, two-thirds of the book, chronicles this harrowing journey first to Mexico City and then on and on across Mexico or up through Mexico in the company of many other characters, other people who are also fleeing, as they constantly keep moving and try to escape from Mexico and illegally enter the US. And some of the characters they meet along the way are drawn in an authentic way. They've got their own reasons for wanting to leave Mexico. And look, I, for one, bought the treacherousness of the journey that worked for me, the impact upon them physically, but, you know, also mentally, how worn down they became and the psychological impact. And, you know, there's a lot of in Lydia's internal dialogue that she's having with herself to survive. And that, that did feel authentic to me. And I think the other interesting thing was sort of the relationships they formed with the others along the way, the alliances, who you trust, who you don't trust. Oh, yes. Who you're wary of and who you grow attached to. Mm. And I think that's quite interesting, that idea of a group of people who are under such abject pressure 
you would form attachments. It's a very common human thing, isn't it? Is. It is. You'd, you'd seek attachment with some people. Scary situation, you? very yeah. intense situation, and you're friends for life. Yeah. They're part of your family after yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So eventually they seek the assistance of a coyote, which I believe is the name they give to people who take you across the border. Yes. Coyotes, I presume, because they can move through the terrain unnoticed. Yeah. Wily coyotes. And I think the name of the coyote they meet is it Il Chakal. Yes, the jackal. the jackal. I think that was a yeah. bit much personally. But anyway, Lydia does have some money because she's emptied her mother's bank account. So she isn't dirt poor. And that's probably the first thing that has got up the nose of the critics in the book. Because, of course, it's well documented that most Mexicans trying to leave Mexico are not middle class and educated. But I don't think that's fatal to the book. At least I don't think that's fatal to the book. But we're going to get to that in a moment. Yeah. I probably shouldn't talk too much more about the story. And we don't want to say the ending or anything like no, that. No, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. To me, what's really interesting about the book is the hoo-ha about it. Mm. There's so much to say about this book and about identity politics in general. And I think identity politics and questions of um, cultural appropriation are subjects that are going to come up on our podcast again. Yeah, absolutely. Because they're conversations of our time. Hmm. This came up a little bit when you and I discussed Dark Emu and Salt by Bruce Pascoe in episode four. And the drama with that continues. Yes, that's recently blown up in a way that we really could not have foreseen and in a really horrible way. So I I was very interested to read American Dirt before it was published because it sounded like it had a very compelling plot. So I was keeping an eye out for it and I was following pictures of it on Instagram. And then the voices of the Latinx readers started to express uh, negativity over the book and then it blew up into a huge controversy and I sort of put off getting hold of a copy and I thought, oh, I'm not, I'm not going to read it. And I was actually a bit intimidated because I thought th- there were some people being very rude on Instagram and writing really horrible messages and I thought if I post a picture of this on my Virginia Reads Instagram page, I, then I might get a pile on, yeah. which I really would rather avoid. So I started reading a lot of the comments and the article by Miriam Gerber, just trying to find out what the objections to the book were so that I could decide for myself. And then having read all that, I decided to read it for myself, so I bought a copy. So having read a lot of the comments, I understand what the objections are, and I think many of them are valid objections. I I actually really do understand many of the issues. They're not just with the book, they're with the marketing of the book and with mm. the publishing industry. So they're, But they've all been sort of thrown into one big Multiple basket. Yeah. And at the bottom of everything, the major underlying issue in all of this, which is the political situation in America yes. at the moment, and Donald Trump building a wall to keep yeah. Mexicans out. And it's just a dreadful reality of our time. And all Mexicans are criminals. They're yes. all rapists. They're all, yes. you know, we need to yes. keep them out. And that they're all coming in here and taking our jobs, which if you've ever listened to that podcast that Malcolm Gladwell does about the circularity yes. of the Mexican migration, mm. everyone should listen to that yeah, episode. Mm. A lot of Mexicans crossed the border. They would work and do harvesting or work for farmers or whatever and earn enough money and then go back home. And yeah, that, take and the money back home. Take as well. the money back home. And yeah. it was a circular economy and it didn't harm anybody. Mm. And they were not coming in and taking anyone's jobs. Anyway, that's part of the political landscape. So the main objections that I'm aware of, and I think you've got a few more, but Mm. one is that Janine Cummins is not Mexican Mm. herself and she has not lived the experience of Mm. crossing the border into America with a coyote. 
Another one is that Flatiron Books paid her a seven-figure sum for the book, which could be $1 million or I suppose it could be up to $9 million. I yeah. actually don't know. And I'm not sure whether that includes film rights. It mm. may include both. The other thing is that Flatiron Books marketed the book with this incredibly tasteless and insensitive launch party where they had a background made of barbed wire. Mm. And you can understand why that would be very upsetting to people. Another one is that the author tries to explain at the end of the book what she was aiming to achieve in writing the book. And she says that she wanted to give a voice to a faceless brown mass, which has caused God. a lot of offence, which I can understand. Yeah, I can understand and that And, of too. course, the argument that it, she shouldn't need to explain what she was trying to do with the book because the book should speak for itself. And you can argue both ways about that because these days authors are forced to explain their books every which way. Another objection is that having previously described herself as white in an article she wrote, I think it was for the New York Times about four years ago, she's now saying, I have a Puerto Rican grandmother mm. and bringing out this immigrant grandmother and sort of trying to make out that she's a Latinx woman herself. And the other thing is that she often now mentions in interviews that her husband was for several years an undocumented immigrant, but without saying from whence he came. Yeah. There was a red flashing light when I read that or heard her say that in a few interviews. And after beetling around on the internet, it turns out that he's Irish and it was really just a green card issue and not the same thing at all as what the uh, Mexican immigrants are going through. So the unfortunate thing about this is that some of the readers who've argued most strenuously against the book, certainly on Instagram, which does have a very a huge bookish community, have said things like, Janine Cummins has no right to have written this book, or this book should not have been published, or even things like, in publishing this book, the publishers have silenced own voices writers from telling their stories. And the trouble with making these sorts of very extreme remarks is that it's no different from banning books. The, the net effect is the same. We all agree now that banning books is wrong and banning a book or saying it should not have been written or should not have been published has the complete opposite effect of what is desired, which it makes everyone immediately want to go out and read the book, which is what's happened here. And those comments as to why the book, she should not have written the book, is because she is white. Yes. And that no white person has a right to have written this yes. book. Yes, and that's an overarching... And I fundamentally disagree yeah, with that. Yeah, and I think most people would say, you can write anything you like. Mm. You don't have to have lived an experience. No. But there is a caveat to yeah, that, absolutely. which is that if you want people to read it and accept yeah. it, you have to really research it, which Janine Cummins did. I gather she researched this for about four years but that you also have to do it very sensitively. And it has to feel... I mean, people won't buy your book if it doesn't feel authentic. Yes. So, you know, you and I are not saying that you have to be Indian to write about India, you have yeah. to be Mexican to write about Mexico, Australian yeah. to write about Australia, but you have to have researched and yeah. created an, yeah. an authentic piece of fiction. And that's really what should sell or not sell the book. But, of course, what's selling the book on this occasion is this huge controversy. Yes, and it's hard to know which of these objections is fueling. They've all sort of been thrown in a, in a basket and everyone just hates the book. <laughs> well, I'm not sure that everybody does hate the book. Sorry, the people who are yes. objecting to yeah. it. The argument about own voices is certainly a valid one and I think mm. these days we are fortunate in that 
people do have more scope to tell their stories because of social media. Mm. And there is an argument that the publishing industry is very white-oriented. And when you go and give such a huge amount of money to an inauthentic person, Mm. it probably can seem very upsetting Mm. to your cultural group if they don't get a similar amount of resources put into publishing their stories. I, I, I must admit, to me, the figure reflects the political times. Yes. Knowing that this was going to spark huge discussions, that it's this very looming issue in America and actually across the world. Yeah. Immigration and migration and illegal immigrants, so-called illegal immigrants, is such a huge issue across borders across the world. Yeah. So to me, the figure was not necessarily about the content of the book. It was about the yes. political issue. Well, I, I would imagine Flatiron thought we can really generate a lot of mm. discussion and controversy about this book and we will get our money back. I mean, that's what it's down to is whether they can recoup that money that they've paid to her in sales. You know, it is very hard to sell books and there's this sort of divide between the J.K. Rowling books which bring in squillions of dollars Mm. and then the large majority of authors who can maybe make a living and many who can't even make a living even if they sell quite a lot of books. Mm. So there are definitely the haves and the have-nots in in authors and in publishing and they obviously knew they were going to make their money back. Absolutely. And look, I personally defend her right completely to write this book but I think that she's been very poorly advised. Yeah. And I also think that, you know, you can't mislead people when you write a book like this. Yeah. And so whether it's the author herself or the advice she's received from a publicist or it's just the giant marketing machine that's behind the book, there's certainly been some statements that have been made have been extremely unfortunate and misleading. You mean by Janine? Yes. About her husband and that sort of thing? Yeah, her husband and... I don't know if the initial edition of the book had the author's notes. Did it always have the author's notes? Yeah, I don't know. My copy has the author's notes at the back of it. I'd love to know when those author's notes were added or whether they were there from the get-go. Yeah. Because that speaks to me that they already knew how controversial this book was going to be. I think they did know. And that colours it a little bit for me. Yeah, well, they've tapped into that. I mean... In my initial reaction is, oh, gosh, poor Janine Cummins, she's getting a lot of flack. And then I thought, no, this is exactly what they yeah. wanted and it's exactly what she wanted. And because of all this, she's laughing all the way to the bank. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying it's a literary masterpiece, but to me it's a shame because really it's taken the focus off the book. Yes. And the book should be judged for its content. Yes. Um, she obviously did do a lot of research. Yeah. It's a suspenseful fascinating story about a harrowing journey. I mean, of course, some of the criticisms are also to do with the fact that Lydia has a middle-class background. There seem to be a lot of criticisms of of her for that reason, that most migrants leaving Mexico certainly don't have money Money, money in her pocket. to pay the coyote, yeah. I've also read some criticisms of the character of Javier, the cartel boss. I don't want to give too much away, but the criticisms are that cartel bosses are not like him. They're not educated, measured, erudite men, Yeah, how Javier is, is yeah. drawn in this yeah. book. But at, at the end of the day, it's a work of fiction. Yeah. This did remind me, Lou, of, do you remember Helen Demidenko? Uh, she was Helen Darville yes. from England, and she wrote a book called The Hand That Signed the Paper. Absolutely. And it claimed to be about a Ukrainian family that had helped the 
Jews, I think. Mm. And then she did interviews saying that she had drawn on her own family experiences. She dressed in costumes. <laughs> she dressed in dirndls with her plaits. <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> and she turned up to the prize-giving ceremony for the man Booker. That's with right. With the plaits, I think, across her head. Yes. Well, that's my yeah. memory. Yeah, absolutely. I may have conflated it more Full than costume. one event. In the dirndl. Yeah. Full U- Ukrainian and costume. then someone outed her and mm. said... Well, no, actually, she's a British girl with Mm. two British parents and she knows nothing Mm. about any Mm. of these things. And there was a huge scandal at the time. And that was sort of a forerunner of the argument that someone who hasn't got a Ukrainian heritage cannot be writing this book. Yes. I don't know that it was couched in those terms at the time. And we certainly didn't use the word cultural appropriation back then. But I think that's gone one step further. Janine isn't professing. She's not putting on Mexican costumes. And really, if you think about it, what people were complaining with Helen yes. Demidenko yes. <laughs> was the deceit yes. about who she was. Yes. I think what it reminds me of is that in defending her actions when she was mm. revealed, she said she did it because she didn't think people would take to the book and yeah. would believe yeah. the story and she felt that it was a marketing device. And it's interesting, she's now called Helen Dale. She doesn't have the white blonde hair anymore. She's married and she practises a lawyer which I found fascinating, Mm. and she's an advisor to a Liberal politician. Wow. And she's extremely right-wing. She took it one step further, but these issues do remind me of whether we're prepared to read something that comes purely from someone's imagination or whether we need to think, this person really knows what they're talking about and I'm only going to read a book if you have lived that experience. And that's really one of the the key arguments here. (laughs) And we've had this with books about the Holocaust before, whether or not you are able to write a fictional story about the Holocaust, never having experienced it yourself. And I think that when there are such highly charged, deeply personal experiences in life, then it's always going to be harder to justify. Yeah, it's such a sensitive book. I found American Dirt to be very compelling. It's a real page turner, mm, it but it's turner. certainly not the greatest piece of literature I've ever read. It's reasonably well written, but it does have some flaws and it's certainly not better than any other, a number of books that I've read that I think are actually just as good or better mm. in the last year or so. But because of the controversy, this is selling like hotcakes and they're not. Yeah, and the book isn't the focus. Yeah. I mean, one of the flaws in this, I think, is the portrayal of the young son, Luca. He's yeah. eight years old and he's used as a device by Janine Cummins to convey map information to the reader in a way that just doesn't work. No, he's meant to be a geography savant, yeah, isn't he? Yeah, like, I, I describe him as a map savant. <laughs> um, he delivers these sort of didactic descriptions of which town they're in and where that lies in relation to other places and the mm. next town and where they've been and where they are in Mexico and how far they are from the border and that did not work for me at all. And he's also attributed with a maturity that's way beyond yeah. his years. He's talking to the the young girls that they link up with and his thoughts and his reactions and his maturity, notwithstanding that he's been through a horrendous experience on this journey, he still would not have the emotional maturity to respond to these young girls in the way that he did. And at one point she says something like, and Luca looked at uh, her and he had never been in love. And I thought, oh, for God's sake, mm. this is an eight-year-old child. Well, it's interesting because I think what was more likely there was 
it was how she describes the attachment that yes. Luca has to one of the other, yes. one but of the other passengers. she tried to make it sort of like a love. A romantic, yes, yeah, she did. Yes, which yeah, like an infatuation. I think that that was more about him looking for that female attachment. It yeah, was nothing absolutely. to do with, yep, you know, a romantic yeah. love at all. After all this fuss, I thought, well, the right thing to do is to read some own voices, Mexican writers. And so I have just finished uh, reading uh, Valeria Luiselli's The Secret Children's Archive, which is a much better written book. She has a beautiful, beautiful writing style and she's a Mexican woman who lives in America. But the plot is not as compelling and it did drag for me a little bit in the middle. That could have been a bit shorter. And I'm going to try and read a couple more because there's certainly plenty of them around just to sort of balance out because I do feel for the Mexican community and the Latinx community that feel so hard done by yes, in this, yeah. even though I think there's a handful of people who took it way too far. But that's always the case, yeah, isn't it, really? Yeah, and they sort of muddy the waters yeah, a bit. the waters and are muddy. I agree. And what else have you been diving into, Ginny? I've seen a fair few movies. We saw Bombshell mm. the other night, which is the movie about Roger Ailes at Fox TV. It was really well done, very well acted, but I found it a bit stressful to watch because the women were just being so badly treated and the women in it were not particularly nice characters either. They weren't particularly sympathetic characters. They're all very aggressively ambitious. Their faces are all sort of pumped full of Botox. They all look a bit like caricatures. They're very gaunt, very competitive and very much in support of the men around them, some of the women, which was really hard to watch actually. So Charlize Theron's in it. She's really good. And Nicole Kidman, yeah, she's okay. And Margot Robbie was very good, although I didn't really like any of the characters. There is a very funny scene near the end where the actor that's playing Rupert Murdoch just does the most appalling accent. I don't know why they didn't get an Australian yes, actor. Yes, to play the role. I looked him up and he is British mm. and he, he made Rupert Murdoch sound like a cockney. Oh. <laughs> just everyone in our little, we were in one of the little cinemas and everyone, just, yes. this Australian yeah. audience, just spontaneously started laughing. The whole, about, oh, I'd say half the audience all burst out into laughter, the bad accent. And the most depressing thing was at the end of the film, the words, you know, are typed up on the screen saying that Fox TV paid out $50 million to victims of sexual harassment mm. and they paid $65 million out to Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly. I know, and they have severed payments. I haven't seen Bombshell, but I've been watching the Stan series about exactly the same story, which is The Loudest Voice. Oh, yes. Where Russell Crowe plays Roger oh, Ailes. Oh, yes, with the big prosthetic face. Yes, amazing. Yes. I haven't seen and it He's yet. revolting, but exceptional in the role. Yeah, yeah. Really, he, he's creepy, as all get out. So it's, it's interesting. So every actress who is blonde appears to have got a role this year because <laughs> we've got Sienna Miller. Oh, right. And Naomi Watts, oh. who are playing the newsreaders. And is this on Foxtel? Stan, and it's exceptional. I have to say that the Murdoch in, in that series is not too bad, actually. Okay. He's quite good. Because Murdoch yeah. doesn't have a very ochre Australian no, accent. No, I mean, they, ha- they have made him a bit Aussie. Yeah. But it's not too bad. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It wouldn't be easy to do his accent, but this was, oh, come on, mate. <laughs> Oh, there's a lot of mate. There's a lot of mate. It's almost like at the end of each sentence they have to say mate 
by the way, he's an Australian. Yeah, yeah. 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 The other movie that I did see, which I just adored, I absolutely urge everyone to go and see it because I just loved it so much, is Jojo Rabbit, which is the movie by the New Zealand director Taika Waititi. And it's a, an anti-hate movie and mm. it's just brilliant. It's incredibly clever satire. The music is wonderful. As soon as we walked out of the cinema, we wanted to go and see it again. Oh, that's fabulous. Um, so Taika Waititi plays Hitler and he he's in the imagination of a little boy called Jojo who's this really cute little, he looks like he's about eight, in the local Hitler youth group with a whole lot of other little German children and they're being indoctrinated into Nazi hate. And the story follows Jojo, whose father is away at war and his older sister has died and he lives just with his mother in a house in Germany and he discovers that his mother is hiding a Jewish girl named Elsa in a secret cavity in the house. But he can't let on to his mother that he knows about Elsa because he doesn't want to get his mother into trouble. But he's feeling very conflicted because he's being fed all this anti-Semitism at Mm. the local Hitler Youth Group. And so gradually he and Elsa get to know one another and they form this really lovely friendship and then outside events start to unfold in the war. And did you say Hitler is a figment of his imagination? Yes. So like a, a friend? He just keeps reappearing in his bedroom. Yeah, so, okay. So he's there in the room, but yeah. we know that he's in, just in Jojo's imagination. Yeah. yeah. And Scarlett Johansson plays the little boy's mother, and she's absolutely wonderful. And Rebel Wilson is in the Nazi Hitler youth, oh, and she is just brilliant. She, instead of saying OMG, she says OMGOT. <laughs> And she just sends the Nazis up in the best possible oh, way. Oh, fantastic. It's sounding a bit Mel Brooks-esque. It's wacky. It's yeah, it really very wacky, Mel Brooks. But, and it's not easy to carry off that sort of no. satire. Like, it can go wrong. Yeah. But it doesn't in mm. this. And the head of the Gestapo is played by Stephen Merchant. You know that really tall, yes, gangly yes, guy that yes, writes Ricky it. Gervais. Yeah. yeah, they write together. So yeah. he's sort of a bit Gestapo-ish and a bit not. And uh, he's excellent. He wrote The Office, well. didn't yeah, he, with, exactly. with Ricky exactly. Gervais? Yeah. So what really made the movie incredible is the satire and the ridicule of the Nazis because they're made to look quite crazy and unhinged. So Taiko Waititi is talking to Jojo in his bedroom in his imagination and he starts off talking to him in a normal voice and then in the space of a minute he just inexplicably ramps up to raving and shouting just like Hitler did. The speeches, yes. yes. Yeah. And you just go in a very short space of time from a normal person to a not normal person. <laughs> yeah. And it really uh, just shows the divide and the gap and, and what happened. There's also a lot of beautiful imagery. For example, there's this theme throughout the whole movie of tying shoelaces. Yeah. So Jojo's mother, when he's young, at the beginning of the movie, is always crouching down and tying up his, his shoelaces for him because he doesn't know how to tie them. And then shoelaces recur in the story and in one part in a very sad way. And then at the end of the film, Jojo crouches down and ties up Elsa's oh, shoelaces. Yeah. And it's this sort of beautiful way of depicting Jojo growing up Mm. and moving from being someone taken care of and having his shoelaces done to being able to do his own and then being able to take care of another person. And it's that journey that he's gone on through the course Mm. of the movie. It's so beautifully done and there's lots of things like that. I want to go and see it again because I miss I'll come with you. Yeah, I'd love to go and see it. So what else have you been diving into, Lou? Well, I've just got a podcast which I'm hooked on, which my sister-in-law has recommended, is Don't Stop Us Now. 
And that's a podcast created by two women, Greta Thomas and Claire Hatton. They're two uh, very successful Sydney leaders and entrepreneurs. And in their podcast, they interview sort of women from around the world, quite a diverse group who are pioneers or innovators in their fields. And they explore the paths they've taken and sort of the challenges and obstacles that they have faced along the way. And it's a really impressive group of women that they interview. And clearly, you know, Claire and Greta have also accomplished a great deal. But I think the hallmark of the podcast, at least the episodes I've listened to thus far, is how down to earth the interviews are. You know, there's no blinding with science. It's all very real and accessible. Wow. And all of the women share their doubts and their insecurities that they've followed along the way. That sounds great. And those episodes alternate with other episodes which give great advice and tips about career and work issues. So what, some episodes are interviews and then some are just them speaking. They're giving you Ah. tips. Yeah. But even though it's in a sort of a work context... They have their, great application life, yeah, in everyday life. life. Yeah, yeah, of course. So, for example, I've listened to a episode, How to Manage Your Inner Critic, oh, which is great. Yeah. Another one, How to Breathe Easy About Your Purpose. I mean, purpose oh, is such a buzzword. Yeah. A bit like Journey was a few yeah, years yeah. ago. <laughs> Get a bit sick about people talking about purpose. What's my purpose? <laughs> What's your purpose in life? But it, it is, it's great because it cuts through all that. Yeah. There's an episode on how to manage office politics, oh, which is would, actually pretty good in a social context yeah, as well. Yeah, well, it's dealing with people, isn't it? And then one of my favourite ones was how to have a difficult conversation because oh, I think some people are good at difficult conversations. You are. Oh. You are, Louise. You are very good at it. I've learned well, a lot sure. from you. Well, I suspect that I'm even better yeah, now because yeah. I've listened to this I really episode. want to listen to that one. Yeah, uh, that's yeah. a good one. Because that's a if you don't have someone that you can copy, or if you've never seen someone do a difficult conversation well, yeah. it's actually very hard to know how to do one well yourself. And their tips on first glance are quite mundane and simple. Yeah. So they literally the take you through are. steps. Absolutely. Yeah, keep it simple. So, yeah, look, this is yeah. a great podcast, a great one to dip into. Well, today has been a huge episode, sure Virginia, has. but it's probably appropriate that we've had a bumper episode. Yes. Given that we've just come back after a very long break. Yeah. And we've been nagged on Instagram to hurry up <laughs> and release an episode. Yes. <laughs> and we're very grateful, aren't we, for we all the support are. we've oh had. Oh my goodness. We've had, I think it's nearly two months off and every single day uh, we've had people listening to all of our 11 episodes in season one. We are so happy about that. It's yeah, been it's been amazing. We're so grateful to everyone for tuning in and listening to one and then going back and listening to all the others. It's so heartwarming. It is. We've had people telling us that they've listened to them all again yep, over yep. the summer, so that's been really special. So lovely. And then this morning I looked on Wooshka, which is the platform that distributes our podcast i don't actually know what wooshka does that's different it's sort of like the funny middleman it's a feed they feed it through yeah, to the, they to feed the... it to apple i think and for some inexplicable reason our graph had gone berserk well for us berserk like we had a lot of listens today well, the most listens we've ever had in more a day. listens than we've ever had in a day and that was only by eight o'clock in the morning so we don't know whether someone's recommended us somewhere or whether apple have done something and put us somewhere. So can you please tell yeah, us? Yeah, we're just so excited. <laughs> if anybody knows why, we'd love to know. We're so excited to see all these. And while I was looking, the numbers were going up. It was just very exciting and fantastic. And we hope that it will continue. Yeah, absolutely. But yes, if anyone knows, if you've 
heard about us from somewhere, someone recommended you, do let us know because we're not sure where these new listeners have come from, but we're so happy to have you. So I thought I would read, I'm going to try and get into the habit of reading a review each week because people are so kind and thoughtful in the things they say. So this one is one from Alana Estelle. I got it off the Wooshka site and she says, love it. Virginia and Louise are so funny, intelligent and so soothing to listen to. If you are a lover of literature, this one is a must for you. How nice is that? I know. And then there's another one here by Mama and Sophie, another American person. And she's, you'll love this, Lou. She's called the, her title is Delightful, which we've refrained from using today, Karen. We didn't say the word delightful. These, she wrote, these girls make me laugh so much, but also let me know about amazing books I have never heard of. And now I am reading. I am kind of obsessed with this podcast and keep listening to the episodes over and over. How lovely. How lovely. And these are people we don't know. <laughs> We've got to stress. They're not just our friends. So Yes. I've got another one here. Just love listening to this podcast of two incredibly intelligent, articulate people. I feel a bit bad sort of repeating yeah, those I know, words. I know. Listened again from beginning whilst away as I was cooking up a storm with these two in my kitchen. Suggested the Dutch House for Book Club after hearing it on here. Loved it. Bought Commonwealth at the airport, but currently too jet lagged to read. Heard about Alec Baldwin podcast through these guys and consequently one of his guests who reviews restaurants in New York City had a massive impact on our trip. Thanks, Louise and Virginia. It's a joy to listen to you both, and I'm always a little disappointed when it finishes each week. Keep it up. How lovely. I know. So nice. So So, kind. So nice. So what we wanted to say was if you're listening today, we would love you to rate and review us because if it's the case that our little spike in uh, listeners is because of Apple, then that is a, a reminder of how important it is if you like our podcast to give us a review and to rate us because it really does make a difference, I think, in the charts and it helps other people to find us when they're looking for a new podcast that might be in a topic that they're interested in. Yeah, perfect. And thank you for all your support. We really enjoyed today's episode and we hope you have too. You'll find a list of the books we've reviewed and anything else we've talked about today in the show notes. You'll also find some of the books featured on our Instagram page at diving underscore in underscore podcast. If you would like to share with us any books you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divingin.com. And wherever you listen to the Diving In podcast, whatever platform you use, we would appreciate it if you would please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us, because that will mean we can grow our audience. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in, breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Don't laugh when I say this, but I'm going to say hi, divers. Okay. <laughs>